Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this is a bonus episode recorded at Games Expo in Birmingham, 2017. Yes, unfortunately Matt and I aren't present on this episode, so we thought we'd at least grace you with our presence for, for the intro. I think I was about 50 miles to the southwest, uh, to the southeast fixing bookshelves at that time. Ah, still moving house, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> But Paul, but Paul is accompanied by uh, Lynn Hardy and Mike Mason. Yes, Mike hosted the seminar at Games Expo around the theme of running horror games. Well, I haven't listened to this yet, but it is all good stuff, right, Paul? Of course it is, Scott. Uh, there were some interesting and probing questions from the audience, and also one from Kiri Birch at the end. The questions from the audience are a little quiet on the quiet side, but I did try and boost the volume of those, so hopefully they're quite audible to the to the listener. Well, you even boosted Kiri's one. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I was going to say, do any of them involve fish? I don't think any fish were, you know, harmed in the making of this recording, Matt. Oh. Rest were, assured. Were any of them thrown, though? There were no fish. There were no fish. <laughs> it's it's, it's not fish a proper free world. It's not a proper good friends seminar unless someone throws fish from the audience. Yeah, where was Steve when you need him? <laughs> Enough. <laughs> and now on with the recording. Right, hello and welcome to Games Expo Saturday to the uh, panel stroke workshop on uh, terrifying uh, Lovecraftian Cthulhu Mythosy adventures, uh, whether running or writing or doing them in some way. Um, so um, before we begin, um, I'll introduce uh, who, who we have with us today. Uh, if I can introduce uh, Paul Fricker, who is the uh, co-author with myself on... Paul Cavillius on edition. You may have also seen Paul's name on uh, books such as Nameless Horrors, a uh, scenario anthology, and uh, on the soon-to-be-released, as in, like, next week, kind of, uh, the, the first-ever Paul Cthulhu full-on world-spanning campaign, The Two-Headed Serpent. Uh, I've also uh, joined by Lynn Hardy, who is uh, an illustrious line editor uh, with Modifius, uh, but he's also currently beavering away on... Uh, well, do you want to tell uh, on the um, that campaign you're working on, what, what, what you're doing? Not that one, but the other one, The yes. other one, yeah, <laughs> yes. that other one, yeah, that, you know. I know, yes, nudge, nudge. Um, yes, uh, so uh, I have been commissioned to write Children of Fear, which is a big campaign um, taking in Central Asia, Northern India and Tibet. Sadly, I can't tell you too much about it because it would kind of give the game away, but it's all to do with the darker side of Buddhism and history in that area. But you also oh, that, have worked yes. on things like that, <laughs> which you can buy. And... Which you can buy, yes. That's over on the Midifia stand. So um, I was the line editor for the Kickstarter for Act on Cthulhu, so um, lead writer, editor. Uh, there are two campaigns for that. This is one of them. That was My Shadows of Atlantis, and there was The Assault on the Mountains of Madness, uh, which was Jason Durrell's big campaign. Cool. And I'm Mike Mason. I uh, work for Chaosium. I'm the Call of Cthulhu line editor. So uh, with Paul, we, you know, we wrote the new edition of Call of Cthulhu, and uh, you'll see my name on either as writer or editor of most of the Chaosium books for Call of Cthulhu. So... Um, this um, we kind of build this panel as a, a 
about kind of running and writing horror games, um, it would be kind of really useful for us to kind of know how to kind of gear that for you guys to make so it makes sense. So can I have a show of hands? Are you here to hear about us talk about writing or are you here to hear about tips and suggestions on running or a bit of both? So if it's writing, put your hand up. Cool, thank you. If it's running, put your hand up. Cool. And if it's something else, put your hand up. <laughs> okay, there will be time for questions later. Thank you at the back. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to, okay, so we will touch a bit on writing as we go, but obviously the majority of you are here to kind of talk, uh, listen to about um, running uh, horror games. Obviously, we're, we are kind of a fairly all biased to kind of running Call of Cthulhu horror games, but a lot of the things we talk about can obviously be equally applied to uh, other systems and, uh, you know, are available, etc. Um, so, uh, okay, running, getting together things. Well, do you want to kick off, Paul? Do you mean you recently did a podcast about actually preparing to run games, yeah? So with that in mind, in terms of preparing to run, I call a Cthulhu game, what's different for you in, say, than maybe running a, a non-horror kind of style game? What, what goes through your mind in terms of what you get ready or? I think one of the key things for me is kind of hooking the, the players in. Um, you know, we've worked uh, with, with numerous people on, on writing scenarios, and sometimes it's like they've written the scenario, and then you're like, oh, is it all done? Yeah, yes, yeah, so it's just about done just got to do the player characters and they're like well okay what well, they're just sort of bolted on the end um so there's this there's this great story and i've read some scenarios that where it's where it's a family of people and there's there's they're vying for power between them and there's you know there's somebody's sort of magic tomes and so on and then it's clear that the characters have been bolted on the player characters there's somebody that have been sort of employed to come in by a third party to investigate all this and i just thought well, wouldn't it be more interesting to play those people in the family you know to make those the, the player characters and obviously you can't always do this if it's an ongoing game and your players have all got characters already but usually you can think of some way of, of tying them into the game so in call of Cthulhu, we've got like the character background um, backstory elements and maybe you can sort of hook in on those um, so it might be that you know some of the players have got some sort of things already in their background and maybe that's not in your scenario but maybe you can just tweak those around a little bit and sort of retrofit those into your scenario so I think the essence of a good horror game is that it sort of pulls you in and makes it a bit personal and when we look at things like I don't know say true detective <laughs> or something like that you know think of it good uh, TV or, or films, usually those people doing the investigation find that it's, it's, it, you know, it's touching their lives personally. And the horror is kind of, you know, it's turning tables on them. And they're not just kind of keeping it at arm's length. It's, you know, it's getting under their skin. So it's, a, you know, it's finding some way to do that, I would say, is, is key to uh, you know, producing a, a game that effectively communicates a sense of horror. There's also scaling it as well, isn't it, depending on the time frame you're running it over. Because obviously there's, you can get away with different things in a one-shot as to a couple of, a couple of game play sessions um, and, or compared to a long campaign in terms of how fast you hit them. 
with with the beats and with the horror and how quickly you need to ramp that up to to sort of like start terrifying them if you're doing a long campaign you can build up that tension nice and steadily if you're doing like a one-off you've got to really get in there quickly and establish what's going on you don't have as much time to sort of build it up you don't have to batter them around the head with it but you do need to set your pace according to how long you know you're going to be playing it yeah i think it's really important understanding how long you've got to play um, in any particular session, how many sessions you want to devote to the particular thing you're, you're about to embark on. As Lynn says, a single or whether it's, a, it's going to be, you know, you know you're going to be maybe two or four sessions it's going to take, so you get that in mind, or, or you just start in Orient Express and you're thinking, okay, what am I doing for the next 24 months? So, but it, it, yeah, because that does, because horror is very much about those kind of beats and when you have the penny drops about realisation and things like that. Um, that, that's certainly worth bearing in mind. I, I also, for me, because I mean, obviously, I agree with everything Paul and, and Lynn have just said. That's I think right, they're all very right wise to things to say. Um, I just add in something different, which is more of a practical consideration for horror gaming: um, is the when and who. Um, I know for a fact I can't. I don't run horror games particularly well on a on a Sunday morning at a convention. I just know. Uh, it's not because necessarily the night before, but that is a consideration sometimes at a convention. Um, it is more that it's, it's Sunday morning, the sun's bright in the sky. It's hard sometimes to kind of get in the dark, you know, mindset of, you know, smoky streets and, you know, dark cellars when the sun's bright and the bluebirds are chirping outside the window. It's, the mood isn't quite right, is what I'm trying to say. Whereas, you know... Friday night, starting at eight, the sun's gone down, the wind's blowing against the window and the rustle of the trees. It's, the mood's already there. And so, you know, think about mood, think about timing, and again, think about the players. I mean, you know, I also know, you know, with my own group, I kind of get a sense of when I turn up for the game, these guys have had a... Yeah, it's clear they've had a hard week at work. <laughs> But what they want to do is actually let their hair down. So maybe I need to probably turn up the pulp meter for tonight's game, even though I wasn't intending to, because that's kind of what they're going to enjoy. And I know I'll enjoy doing it at the end of the day. Whereas other times it's kind of like, yeah, I think we can go for kind of turn the pulp down and actually turn the horror up because everyone seems to be, you know, focused. They're in the, they're in the right train of mind. And sometimes that's about a discussion you have at the start of the game when you're kind of shooting the breezes and catching up. But... I think be adaptable to the to the tunes and, and you know uh, the mood of, of the group as well. It, it's important for horror gaming sometimes. And this is where I have to say I prefer running in the morning because after about nine o'clock at night my brain doesn't work anymore. <laughs> so if I actually want a coherent adventure, I have to game earlier than that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of like I guess some considerations in sort of preparing and and thinking about the. the you know about to run what about okay what about you everyone sat around the table uh you've you know you've outlined the initial kind of uh, the setup and uh whether it's kind of starts in media res or there's a there's a you know a, a clue pulling the people into something that they need to now kind of investigate to get a sense of the, the scale of things um what you know how do you kind of you know the, let's talk about like you know the first sort of hour of the game how what sort of um what sort of tips can you can you think about Lynn? Anything particular? Oh damn! I'm hoping you're going to ask Paul first. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to trying to be fair and try it around a bit. Um, it's what Paul was saying though. It is you've got to get them in quickly because if it's if it's sort of slow to begin with, with 
having said all that about building your tension, you've still got to be able to get them in and get them invested quickly so that they're buying into it because the worst thing in the world is if you start and they're still you're still having that discussion of oh hi how's your week been you know you that's going to take away from the atmosphere it's going to take away from the investment so you do have to have a really good juicy hook to get them in there i mean you can get away with oh you accidentally stumble across something weird every now and again but yeah within the first hour you really need to get them pulled in you need to get the mystery in front of them so that they're starting to ask the questions even if it's only a, a tiny little facet of that mystery yeah i'm gonna counter that a little bit i mean <laughs> i think i think you're right a little bit of it but what i have seen and, and listening to some um, actual play recordings as well because I, I listened to some of those sometimes the if you so everybody's got their characters and they're looking at their character sheets and they're kind of you know they're getting into role playing their characters what I see is if you hit them with a kind of extreme weirdness too quickly, it's like, oh, I don't really need to worry about what my character, you know, all their traits and what they're, what they're like. There's this weird thing happening and I just, I'm just going to focus on that. And suddenly nobody's necessarily, they, they kind of forget about their characters um, and they just focus on the weirdness, particularly if it's, if it's that kind of scenario. So I think personally I prefer a kind of a, a slow build and yes, like you say, Lynn, to introduce some things to hook them in. Mm -hmm. But, and, and sometimes, I mean, when I say a slow build, it's a slow reveal, I guess. Sometimes yeah. it'll be a kind of in-media res start and it'll be all action. And then there's a sort of breathing space, but, um, but to sort of reveal the, the mythos or the sort of strangeness, you know, little glimpses of it at the beginning. Because um, too quickly and I don't know, the magic kind of seems to, to be dispelled a bit. I was just thinking of practical examples of things and I was, I was going to talk about some fell on stony ground because, and then it struck me that what you're describing is a really good way of introducing that scenario. So that, that's the scenario that Paul wrote in Nameless Horrors. I don't, uh, is it on play, play that one or run it or, no? Okay. Well, now's your chance. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, without giving the plot away, um, it starts in a small town America. I mean, it could be small town anywhere, but small town America. And and you play kind of regular folk in the town. I mean, it's introduced that you are you live in the town with pre-gen characters, but there's no reason why you couldn't be travelling through the town, let's say, with established characters. And it starts off quite small. You you can start things off quite. You know, you, you're looking out the window. You just see something not too weird, but just to make an yeah. odd, a little odd. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it, it enough for the character yeah. then to talk that. Back to the other character, you get a bit of character development. Yeah, interaction with NPCs, I think, is, is good. You sort of slowly pull them in. Yeah. And in my mind with that, I've got very much, you know, that kind of small town America that we'd see in the Twilight Zone. So it's, it's any, any episode of the Twilight Zone that has that kind of, you know, could be anywhere in America town. Um, that's, that's kind of what I'm aiming for. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, and I, I think that, I mean, a lot of these guys do that, but... That one strikes me as a real, a really good way of, that, that illustrates exactly what you kind of both were saying. That there's a, there's a big secret in the town, and you can reveal that. You could reveal that really quickly, but but actually, it's really nice just to slowly kind of yeah. drop just one little instances of witness, and particularly through the NPCs, as Paul says. Yeah. That it's, it's just enough to pique their interest, to keep them invested, yeah. to, to get them going that next step, while also it? giving them room to kind of play off each other as character, player characters, and you know. Um, because it, it creates that wonderful kind of um, dynamic where, you know, one or more of the player characters kind of start to think one way and the others are thinking the other way. So there's kind of an internal kind of difference starts to develop. 
there's not a conflict, but it's enough to kind of generate interesting discussion between them. Yeah, I mean, uh, it kind of depends on what sort of atmosphere you're going for, because one of the ones in, in Shadows is the Peru one, uh, which actually turned out to be a really good way to start the entire campaign, even though it's written for you starting in Vienna, um, is the fact that they start in media res. And the way that it's set up is that they then question absolutely everything that happens after that. So it, that, because I was aiming for paranoia throughout, so you come you do hit them with a weird write-off because the whole thing is that they're not supposed to trust what's happening around them. But again, it, it completely depends on what you want from the scenario, where you're going with it. You have to make sure you're tailoring it to that to get the full effect, don't you? Okay. Well, moving the game on a bit, I mean, I'm using this metaphorical one session to kind of gather in a few thoughts here, but, but you know, we've moved into, you know, we've had, we've had some weirdness happen. You know, things are starting, clearly things aren't quite right wherever things are happening. Um, but you want to, you do want to start to ratchet up the tension. You want to kind of, you know, build the horror now. Um, so what do you do, Paul? Do you just, do you just throw a monster in at that point? What, what happens? <laughs> uh, I kind of see it. You've got, like, when I prep the game, I've got a, a, a bunch of scenes that we're going to play out, and they may not come in any particular order. And you know, the keep has to be uh, very reactive to what the players do. But you know, I know that I've got a bunch of stuff here that I can rely on. If you decide to go somewhere else, well, that's fine. We can we can wing that. But I, I know that I've got stuff in my in my bag that I can sort of pull out um, a, a bunch of scenes that we're going to play through. And um, you know, the, also that the keeper, as I say, has to be reactive and very uh, responsive to, to how the player's sort of going, really, the pace of play. So if it's kind of dropping down a bit, it's good to have some things that you know you can kind of throw at them anywhere. So like this NPC turns up, and he could turn up anywhere in the game, but he's going to turn up and kind of, you know, poke the hornet's nest, really. Um, so if you've got things like that, that's because sometimes the, 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 the PCs are sort of floundering. Um, so always have a, a few things up your sleeve that you can kind of pull out yeah. I'd say that and, and hopefully it's 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 all rolling along and you can tell if your players are in you know hopefully you can tell if your players are kind of engaged and enjoying it um, and that might be you know everybody's laughing and, and having a great time or it might be sort of a, a quiet somber mood um, but you know you just got and kind of got to keep your yeah sort of uh, ear to the ground really on that mm. I think yeah how about you Lynn in terms of um, let, okay so let's say it is a point to reveal some sort of monster, you know, in loose terms. But it's a, you know, yeah. it's in the back of the rule book somewhere. It's a monster. Um, how, you know, what, how, what's your kind of thoughts on how you introduce the monster? I'm a big believer in sort of like the the less you see, the more scary it is. So it would, I, I start usually introducing like glimpses out of the corner of your eye, noises. Listen rolls. Listen rolls are great. <laughs> Especially if you get to do the sound effects as well. Um, <laughs> so just slowly, that kind of thing, rather than the just... I mean, sometimes jumping out the cupboard going, rah, is, is good if, you know, you're just doing a very short thing. But, no, I do like to, to, to sort of do that sort of more subtle thing first before I smack them around the back of the head with something with lots of claws and teeth. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean... I. 
I think we go spend a fair bit of length in the rule book, Paul, talking about you know naming monsters and don't use the monsters real, you know, the name that's in the rule book because that's kind of gives the game away sometimes. But I think it's also uh, worth elaborating on, um, particularly for horror games, is that you know, yeah, the monsters are codified, yeah, they have a stat line, and yeah, there's a general acceptance that a, a ghoul and a deep one are kind of a you know, human-like, and they're you know they are a bit you know a bit tougher than your average human, but you know a group of group of investigators can take them out with a few you know carefully placed shotgun blasts and whatnot. So they're not that hard, you know, that kind of perception, and it's kind of well that's that's fine, but it kind of diminishes the horror of them, and and you know, they are meant to be horrifying things. So um, don't worry about what the stat line says. You know, if you want to make them, if you want to make them more scary, then make them more scary and not worry about so much about the stat line. If you want to adjust the stat line up and make them doubly, doubly tough or whatever it may be, that's cool as well. But, you know, how one deep one might play out is different to how another deep one might play out or even how it might look or act or sound or where you may see it um, so you know try not to think of them too generically try and think of them as individuals just like you would all the different npcs they're all quite clearly individuals in a scenario you know presented in with different descriptions and traits and motivations you know monsters should kind of be the same yeah they all probably want to eat the investigators but you know, they don't all necessarily want to do it in the same way or at the same time and in the same manner. Um, so just think about, yeah, think about the uh, the way you can portray them in that way. And, and again, using the kind of, you know, the kind of subtle asides and glimpses and sounds. And, and what I've always found is really effective is the kind of after effects of a monster. So the investigators rock up and... Um, they, they go to where the monster has been and now is not there anymore. It's moved on somewhere else. But they get to see the aftermath. And often that, that really helps build a tension because they kind of see, what did this? Because well, you know, it's bad or you know, it's, it's, it's chaos or the building's falling down or there's limbs strewn or whatever it may be. It's clear something bad has passed. And so in their minds, as Lynn was just saying, their imagination starts because they don't know what did it. So it could be anything. It could, be, it could just be a, a, a rabid dog. It could be Cthulhu has gone through here. They don't know. But so their imaginations will make it far worse than what you can probably tell them it's going to be. So by the time they get to the reveal, um, they're already, oh, you know. So, um, and the, 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 the one trick I always found really good is when you you really set up the monster you set up the first monster so let's say it's a let's say there's a bunch of ghouls that are mucking around in the in the town the investigators are, are kind of uh, looking into that and they kind of they don't know but they kind of twigged it's <coughs> ghouls or something like that so hey it's okay because we're going to stuck up on some shotguns it'll all be good you know we aven't got to worry too much here and uh, so they you know they get down into the crypts and they know they're going to meet these ghouls and they've got they're, they're, they're all ready to take them out and they get down and they find all the ghouls and they've all been slain and all eviscerated and it's just full of ghoul dead. What did that? Because that is now suddenly... We were scared of the ghouls and we think we can take it, but now what did that to the ghouls? Clearly just like a breeze. And then they hear the noise behind them that doesn't sound like a ghoul. That's when they kind of, oh, you know, the beer comes back into it in that sense. So you kind of set the levels, as it were. Yeah. So building... Building to a climax, how about, um, do you, um, 
you know, obviously, when you've written your own scenario, you kind of, it's a lot, often a lot more movable because it's in your head a lot of the times on a few notes that nobody else has ever seen. But let's say you're running something out of a book, you know, so, and it's got clearly, you know, this kind of a clear kind of climactic scene that's written in the scenario, you know, um, but what happens if, um, you know, do, do you ensure that you get to that climax or, you know, whatever happens, it's going to happen? Or do you alter it in the mid-game? How, how do you, how do you deal with a you know a written scenario's kind of you know ending? Do you you, know, you go with what's said, or do you start to change it? I think it's what Paul said. You've got to be reactive to your players and what's gone on because if you're not, and everything that's led up to it doesn't make sense for that to happen, you you break the suspension of disbelief. It will throw the players out of what's going on. So you have to be prepared to tweak it. You have to be prepared to make it fit what's gone before. Because we've all seen things where you can see that they've obviously had this, this, like the TV series where they had the lovely shot. And the lovely shot is lovely, but it's got nothing to do with anything that's gone before it. And that spoils the overall effect. And if you've invested all that time and effort in making it a really enjoyable play experience, the end has to fit. So sort of like, shoehorning something in as is if it doesn't belong with what's gone before it's it's a real shame you know make sure that it works with what's happened it might take a little bit more fast thinking acting on your feet would, would you pause a game i mean you, you know you know as a, as a gm you're coming to closest time you're in the final hour kind of thing and you know that the the kind of they're, they're getting to the ending but they've kind of taken a very mm. very different route from what was kind of expected say in the published scenario so would you say would you say would you take a pause? You say, let's let's go, let's take a drink break. Let's just have five minutes to give yourself a bit of time to think about how you're going to kind of get things on track to where yeah. you want them. I mean, if that's that... what you feel you need, yes, you should. You should if you just because yeah, it's a good way of doing it. I just need you know comfort break, drink break, just being something to snack on a bit. Yeah, if you need to take that break, do it. If you need to just sort of gather your thoughts and think, okay, so how am I going to get this to to work? Yes, that's a perfectly reasonable way of doing it. Paul, just to sort of put it another way, same kind of situation. You know, you come into a climax, but actually, actually, the players are a little are a little way off the climax. You know, there's actually they're they're kind of like a scene or two scenes away from the climax, but you know, time's running out, and you kind of you know, and you you've only got tonight to finish it. Let's say, are are you the kind of person that would be happy to kind of say, hey guys? I'm, what I'm going to do, I'm going to speed this bit up and we're going to sort of fade to black here and open at this end scene or <coughs> do you feel you're cheating the players if you do that or have you ever done it? I think if it's a, if it's a one shot, you know, it's, it's a very different thing, isn't it? Running a one shot or a convention game to running a kind of a, a home campaign. It's, it's a totally different kettle of fish. So if it is a one shot and it's just a one evening thing and you know you're not going to play it you know, again or whatever, then you've got to really be on the ball with the pacing as, as GM. And it is very much down to, down to the GM to kind of pace the game, I think. And, you know, to, to kind of cut forward to that, that end scene. Um, what's that? It's not Grindhouse, is it? What's the, the, the film? Yeah, yeah. The, well, the, missing, um, planet, the, missing planet, the zombies or whatever. I can't yeah. Remember. Yeah, the one where the missing what's reel the happens. Yeah. Planet Terror. Planet Terror, Planet Terror thank yeah. you. Yeah, like, they do this kind of old school thing where they just, um, it's as if the film snaps and there's like a missing reel or something and it just cuts back in and there's like zombies everywhere. Um, so that's, that's one option. But um, I think to, to 
to go back to your point, it's, it's about pacing it. So, you know, you, you've got to, got to keep one eye on what the players are doing, one eye on your scenario, and, and your third eye, I don't know where that is, on your, <laughs> on your, on your, on your watch. Um, and, you know, you know when there's like an hour to go, you need to be kind of pushing on towards the, that, that final scene. But, it, you know, what you said about the final scene scripted in the scenario or the, the one you'd got in mind... You might not get to that, and I think don't try, don't don't struggle too much to to kind of contrive matters to to, to get to that, because often that that big kind of you know I don't know, turning up when the cultists are about to do the big ritual, and then there's big gun battle. Sometimes that's not that satisfying anyway. Um, sometimes a more down key ending can be just as satisfying, and sometimes um, more horrific in the aftermath of that. Yeah, perhaps. yeah, yeah. You know, they, they flee the scene and, uh, and maybe you sort of ask people what you think their characters are doing, you know, so, so where are you going? And uh, I can remember running one scenario where, you know, so, so well, what's your character going to do? And they're like, well, I'm just going to get on the next train and go around America hunting down, hunting down clowns. <laughs> I'm like, well, OK. As you do, and, yeah. Um, yeah, as Kiri would attest to. Um, so yeah, just sort of play out a, a, an ending that feels suitable, and think of some of the films and TV you've seen. It doesn't all have to end in a in a big kind of climactic battle. It can be, yeah, like I say, quite a kind of low-key ending, but with the the horror still sort of looming, you know, there in the background. And failure is is an option. Well, yeah, I think so. Um, I think that's the thing with campaigns. You know, you got chapter by chapter, and if you fail in like chapter three kind of what do you do you've got to got to think about that because i don't like to make it you know again contrive it so that they they do all survive so they can go on to chapter four um but you know if they do all die in chapter three how can you kind of pick the pieces up you know um maybe you know months pass and then you know another group pick up on on what that previous group did or something like that you know another group of player characters so sort of think about so that there's always the threat that you know we might not you know, not survive. And again, the length of the campaign informs that as well, because with one shot, it's much more acceptable to fail if oh, everybody yeah. fails gloriously. You know, so TPKs in a one shot, it's not as well. People tend to celebrate, almost celebrate, <laughs> celebrate We all died. We all died hideously. We all had our faces sucked off. So you know that kind of thing. Again, it's suiting. It's matching the degrees of failure and, and the sort of dancing about you have to do to the length of the campaign to make sure you're going to get to a satisfying conclusion of some sort. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and I think it's really understanding, you know, trying to unpick that word satisfying sometimes because, as you say, you know, it may be... And again, it's, again, understanding your group and knowing your players and, what, you know, what the... What the uh, what their desire are, and you know, if they kind of, if they're the kind of group and the kind of players that kind of, they need some sort of sense of a win... That's cool. You know, you just need to ensure that they can get that sense of a win, even if they've failed the entire campaign. But you can they've test. done their bit. They've done their bit, even though you know they can say you, you can test the water with people. Yeah. I mean, towards the end of Two-Headed Serpent, I mean, with with pulp, you've, there are built-in mechanics whereby you can pretty much avoid death a number of times. You, not every time, but but usually you can avert death. Um, and we were coming towards the climax of the campaign and, you know, a guy had had his, his character in it all the way through and he was going to do a certain thing and I'm, I was sort of, oh, 
well, you know, if you do do this, you probably are going to die, and you're going to die for, you know, that'll be it. And he's like, no, no, and you won't be there for the, the actual climax. And he's like, no, no, that's, that's, you know, that, that feels appropriate for my character, and that's the way I want to play it. So I'm like, okay, sort of back on game, let's, let's do it then. So I think as there's, because sometimes if you, not, but not everybody would have said that. Some people no. said, oh, whoa, 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 okay, I didn't realise that, you know, I was actually going to die here, Let, let's just take a step back. So... You know, I think sometimes you've got to test the water a little bit because you don't want to. Yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't, you know, after it's it's about the investment, isn't it? The player yeah. investment and your investment, particularly you, with the campaign. With, particularly with the campaign, you put all that investment into it. You you don't want it to kind of end sourly for anyone. So you, so I think Paul's right that that kind of testing the water because I mean, yeah, often I've I've had characters where I've been really happy that they've they, they've gone out with a bang. Fairly early, but it's been it's been epic in my mind, and so I've I've been satisfied with that. Whereas I know another player wouldn't would have been less satisfied. So again, knowing your players obviously helps, particularly with you know these style of games. Um, what about just sort of broadening it out now? We'll, we'll I'll open out some questions in a minute if there's anything specific you know you want us to to talk about. But I'm just thinking, you know, horror games. You know, the classic question is, you know, how do I, how do I, you know. What tips, hints, what do you do about building atmosphere or, you know, making, you know, chills run down the spine or, you know, do you use candlelight, music? What, you know, what, what are, what's the secrets, guys? <laughs> no, you can do this one first. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think atmosphere is helped by having, you know, dimmed lights in, in the evening, like you were saying, in, you know, not in the dark, but at night and it's a subdued lighting. I think that that helps quite a lot. Um, having you know, your room where you're not disturbed and so on. Um, I think in terms of communicating a sense of dread and horror, I kind of just try and build up that, that feeling in myself, really. Um, you know, I've had some things where, you know, I have had a shiver down my spine as I'm sort of describing something happening to the, to the player. Um, so just try and immerse myself in it um, and get that feeling. And ask them, don't tell them how they feel. You know, don't tell them you feel frightened. You know, describe what's going on and maybe ask them how, you know, say how their, their character feels. Yeah, it's a good point about the distractions, though, because the last thing you want is something that's going to break that mood once you've spent that time establishing it, because it'll take you a long time to build it back up again. So, yeah, somewhere where you've not got distractions from the outside world sort of butting in and breaking it is, is a good good thing. Some people like subdued lighting, some people like having music. There is some very good music out there, very atmospheric music mm. that you can have running in the background if that's the sort of thing you like. Some people do find it very distracting though. And again, it's, it's knowing your players, knowing what works for them, knowing what scares you. And then you can use that to try and scare other people as well. At the end of the day, you know, Call of Cthulhu is, you know, it's billed as a horror game, mystery, investigative game, but also a horror game. Um, but you aren't going to have horror in every session. You know, it's, it's, you know, you build towards it and, and sometimes the, the, the <coughs> moment is right. The, the point in the scenario is right. The players around the table are in the right frame of mind. You're in the right frame of mind. You presented it. They've they've reacted in an appropriate way, and it just clicks. 
and they are the magic moments. Just you know, and that happens in lots of different role playing games in for, you know for for different atmospheres. But you know, for Call of Cthulhu, that kind of like moment of like realization of, of just how big a mess you're in, or or what you're actually up against, or or because you did that an hour ago, this has now happened, and oh my, what it's all my fault. Um, those moments are very magical, and you can't. It's really hard to engineer them. You just gotta let them happen naturally. But, but as, as the guys are saying, you know, there 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 are little things you can do to help it along. But ultimately, I think you know you're both right. It's that kind of like you've got to kind of start if you want to kind of build tension in others. You kind of got to understand it in yourself. What what you know what? Because if you start to feel a little, if you talk about things that you you you're scared by or that you know make you make your heart beat a little faster. The very mannerisms of how you impart the information on something else is likely to come across. And that, you know, we feed each other. You know, we, one person starts laughing or yawning, everyone else starts. And it's the same with fear. Fear does breed. But the interesting thing is, don't be afraid of laughter in a horror game. Exactly. Because it's often that's it's the nervous laughter, it's the breaking the tension. Sometimes you just need that little bit of light to make the dark even darker. Yeah, and it's also... You also want to relieve. We don't want to all finish the game, you know, depressed and, and you know, never wanting to play again because we've had such a been through the mill so much. Sometimes as a group, that's great and you really and you do want that. But you know, often you you know you want to you know end and right. We finished the game now. Let's have a laugh and uh, you know, or uh, you know, let's talk about what happened and you know, theorise about what's going to happen next week or whatever it may be. You know, it's about you know, at the end of the day, it's a game. So it's about enjoying it, and and you know some people enjoy Call of Cthulhu by playing it in a very gung ho, pulpy style, and there's very little horror in it. It's a very much action Indiana Jones style kind of game. That's great. Other people like dark, slow burn investigation that takes years, and and this creeping horror. That's great too. And most of us do a bit of both, as and when it feels like it. That's that's kind of how it seems to me anyway. But um, we've got a, we've got a little bit more time. We've tried to kind of give you some broad sort of sense in terms of running, because I know the majority of you talked about, wanted to kind of hear about running things. I know some people talked about, put their hand up about writing and things like that, but if there's anything specifically or anything about, you know, the things, you know, we can hopefully try and answer, uh, we'd be happy to do so. And any particular questions or clarifications? I think you may have been just first. gone. Um. When you uh, receive what I guess is essentially an unsolicited manuscript for you, uh, a sort of first scenario, um, are there any sort of bugbears, other than grammar and spelling, which is you know, uh, uh, something that any bugbears or things that annoy you or things that turn you off straight away? I think the simplest way to answer that is uh, I'm looking for two things. I'm looking for, one, a sense that the person... Um, can string a sentence together. So, you know, it doesn't have to be perfectly spelled and the grammar's perfect, but they can clearly have some ability in terms of writing. Uh, and also, I'm looking for the idea. I'm looking for, you know, what... Is that... A, is, that is this something I want to play? Um, so the one thing that would turn me off straight away is, is, a, is the, the outline that is the same as many, many others that have already been done. So, for instance, the outline could be, the classic would be, uh, it's about, you hear about a play that's being put on called The King in Yellow. I know exactly what's going to happen in that scenario because we've, we've published it already and, and it's been done in multiple formats. And it was cool when it was done and it's, they're still great scenarios. But I, I don't need another one of those. 
I'd like a different take on the king in yellow in that respect, uh, as, as an example. Or there's some strange fishing going on down at the cove with these, these, strange, these strange folk who are all covered up and look a bit weird. Well, they're clearly deep one hybrids, and, and we all know that straight away. So give me a different take on that. I'm happy to have deep one hybrids and the king in yellow and all that kind of stuff, but I'm looking for something, you know, a little original as well. Um, and um, that's, yeah, that, that, that was, for me, my biggest turn-off. Is, is something that's kind of like, well, we, you know that's been done. That's, I know you know it's been done before, even if you've kind of forgotten that and kind of just unconsciously rewritten the same scenario. It's, yeah, look at, look at, what, look at what is out there and try not to, you know, just regurgitate that too much, I guess. Yeah, when I was line editing Act on Cthulhu, it was, it was a case of, please no more World War II zombies. I know we've given you some as characters, but, like, we don't want every scenario as... Nazi zombies, thank you. Um, also, just if you're going to only include a woman so that she can be raped, no, that's not happening. And you'd be surprised the number of those I did get. And it's like, no. Or, and child abuse as well, we got quite a few. Uh, I was just like, no, thank you. There are some things that, you know, in terms of horror, if that's what you want to do personally in your group and everybody's fine with that, okay, you do that but that's not something we wanted for our line. And that was, you know, that was the, those the two best, particular... The best advice writing for any games company is look at what that games yeah. company does already. Not what they did 10 years ago or 30 years ago. What have they done in the last 24 months? Yeah, and yeah. look at the submission guidelines look, because yeah. they will usually tell you what they're not after as well. Yeah, and that will give you a good clue. And, you, and that will also hopefully show you some gaps because equally, you know, we're not omnipresent and... You know, you may come up with a really cool idea. We haven't thought of going, actually, that's brilliant. Yeah, we want to do that one, you know. Um, know. Know who you're trying to work for, I guess, in that sense, in terms of writing. There was one over there, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got, I, I have no issue running pre-published adventures and no issue running stuff like uh, the myself. The big issue I have is when I sit down to come up with a new adventure, is working out what the hell and what I want to happen. I've normally, I, it, it's tying in the mythos to everything else. Is there, are there, are there any sort of specific tips and tricks? A, for writing for the mythos in general, and B, writing adventures for a group that has a mix of people who know the mythos and have read Lovecraft and are very familiar, and a complete newbie? Paul? <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think there, there is perhaps a, an idea that, and I've had this, that there might be a kind of almost like a formula you can kind of put that will sort of fit all the different scenarios. And, and I don't think there is, and I don't think you really want one. Um, so, you know, otherwise I think they'd become a bit pedestrian. So I think you've got to kind of, each one has got, each scenario has got to be a bit of a struggle to kind of, you know, to, to twist it into, make the best out of it. Um, so I think, the, the most important thing, I think, is what you sort of said, that you've got that idea. And if that's a good idea, then everything else is just the set dressing to make that, to make that happen. Um, and I think if you think about your good idea, if your good idea relates to some aspect of the mythos, just think what might extrapolate out of that. You know, if this thing were actually happening, how would that affect the, you know, the local people or the world at, at, you know, at large? And just play out some sort of 
you know, scenarios in your head or on, on paper about, you know, how that might extrapolate or, or where that might have come from. And that, that's kind of how I, um, how I would approach it. So if, if I've got an idea, often the last thing I sort of put on is the where's it set and when's it set. Um, you know, other, other writers start off with location and, and research. That's kind of the last thing I, I can, I don't know if that's helpful, but that's kind of where I end up with. But the other thing to remember as well, particularly with this, is your investigators aren't necessarily supposed to know anything about the mythos. So you might have players who know about it, but technically their characters won't necessarily. So you can still, like you, they may well get the gags. So they'll have that, that sort of like nice warm glow of, oh, I know I'm going to get my face eaten off by X, whereas the people who don't know the mythos, it's going to come as a surprise. But you can also use that against them. You can use that to wrong foot them. If they're expecting a certain something, you make sure that it isn't that, um, just so that you're changing it up a bit. I mean, I am the, op- the opposite with Paul. I go for the setting and the research first, because quite often there is nothing as weird as what's already out there, and that quite often sparks ideas for, oh, now, if I just did that, that would actually be a really cool mythos scenario. It just depends on how your brain works. And again, knowing your players, knowing what they like, how are you going to freak them out? And how much mythos do you want? Because you can run Call of Cthulhu relatively mythos light, but still get that You don't have to have horror. the mythos in it. I mean, the, the, there's a section at the back of the book in the monsters bit that's got zombies and vampires in. They're not... OK, Lovecraft had a bit of zombie and vampire in once in a while, but we call them traditional horrors because you can... If you want to run, you know, Call of Cthulhu, the hammer horror... You can do if you like, and no one's going to. Fun police will not be round to stop you. <laughs> um, but you know there, are, you know, and Chaosium in, in you know in, in times past have published the odd scenario that's got no mythos in it. It's been very investigative, or it's been you know a more classic traditional horror or something like that. You know the old uh, Blood Brothers books were scenarios where it had no mythos, but were all horror scenarios in that vein. Um, so yeah, don't feel beholden. And in fact, sometimes when you've got a group of you know experienced veteran, you know, Cthulhu-eyed players who are kind of know everything and you're trying to rethink all the monsters' names and how they look and rework the whole mythos for them. Well, sometimes, you know, change it around. Make it not mythos. Make it something else that will throw them and allow you a bit of breathing space to, to scare them again in that sense. And, uh, yeah, does that, does that help? Yeah, no, yeah. No, thank you. Okay. Any, any, anyone else? I've got a question about NPCs because... Um, in particular, writing the NPCs, because um, I, I've been focusing a lot on acting Cthulhu just recently, but obviously on Call of Cthulhu as well. And um, the problem I've had with is that because coming up with detailed and interesting NPCs is quite important for the investigative side of the game, um, and whilst you, you, you guys are great and you do put examples in, there, and there are not enough to to quickly insert them from it. So I was just wondering, first off, do you have any tips for shortcutting creation of NPCs? And secondly, would there be any interest or do you think it would be wise to publish um, a book of NPCs? You're now doing in loads of different uh, eras and loads of different locations. You could publish a, a, a collection of NPCs that then people could adapt and would use in that way. So, first of all, the shortcut, that's what I'm really interested in, but sure. also whether or not there's a compendium. I mean, I know me and Paul talked about this in, in the rule book because, I mean, originally, 
you know, I think we'd planned to kind of have some generic NPCs in there, but we we ended up just not having room for that. So it was something that you know. You know. So I did I did kind of shoehorn a few into Pulp Cthulhu just to kind of yes. beat cop and whatnot, just to kind of you know fill 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 that a little bit. Um, but I think in general, in terms of on the fly, which is what you're talking about in the middle yeah. of the game, you need you want extra. I th- I think it's it's. Um, it's okay to define an NPC in that sense. It's not. It's never going to be a major NPC necessarily at the point you introduce them because you know that they're, that's something you just need to have. Um, it define them by their skill. Define them by the one skill that they are known for, useful for. It might be a, they're a guide or a translator or a, uh, a detective or whatever it is, shopkeeper, whatever it may be. Just think what's their one skill and say and just in your mentally just say they've got seventy percent in it. Okay. Everything else, they've got less than 50 in. So instantly, you don't need to write their stats down because you just know whatever they're good at, they're good at doing. Everything else is below. So you know in terms of any, if, should a, an investigator need to make a roll against them, unless it's a thing they're really good at, it's just going to be a regular roll. If it's something they're good at, it's going to be a hard roll. Is that fair to say, more or less? Yeah. That's yeah, a good way of doing it. Um, I always tend to look at it as like, oh, right, they need to talk to somebody now. They haven't, in true player style, gone to the person I thought they would go to to do this. What does this person need? What what function do they serve? So I won't necessarily even think of a number unless that becomes yeah, crucial. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just like, what is the point? What important piece of information do they need to get over? And then if they, if they like that person, they start coming back, then you start building on that. But it is, it's how are they moving the story forward? Is the action use I come the up from occupations and the skills that are allowed or to the occupations as a guide to what skill set they would have. That so can be quite a useful thing it, to do. It can as well. it can be just as a, as a as a kind of simple kind of aid memoir to yeah. just have the have that bit open if you need and you can just kind of think oh yeah that you know but you know I would just but I wouldn't hold myself to it. No. You know, I, I had an NPC once in the, who was just attached to her. Or they only appeared, I mean, they didn't even appear. The, the PCs need to get one place from, and they just said, we hail a taxi. Yeah, so I said, okay, a taxi guy, there's a chap in front driving. Oh, he's just, he's like your typical New York cabbie, he's a bit mouthy, and then, and they, and they, but then they started interacting, they started asking questions. So I kind of, you know, passed the time, we answered them back and said, hey, you know, what are you, you know. And suddenly, this guy suddenly develops from this completely nameless NPC to them going like, "We want your number because we want you. We always want you now." <laughs> and, then you, and it was like whenever, and they, you know, in this in this kind of mini campaign, they left New York and they went elsewhere. But when they came back to you, know, we got to get that cabbie. I was like, I didn't even remember him. They yeah. stuck in their mind. So it's, it's, it's funny how these, you know, that just one little scene character suddenly develop into into large characters over time. But yeah, that's. Hopefully, a quick yeah. bit of quick hand to do that. Yeah, this one. Yeah. Um, how do you find a balance between revealing the mystery and also kind of keeping it mysterious on the same time? So, as a player, I find it very frustrating if you walk into a place, a lot of uh, things are happening, and you just you don't have a clue what's going on. And at the end of the adventure, you still don't know what's going on. But on the other hand, you also don't want to find out everything. So, how do you? Is there, what's a good balance in there? I think as as. GM, there's a feeling that, oh, if I tell them this thing, they'll know everything that's going on. I, I better not tell them that. <laughs> but, but then when you do tell them that, they're still like... <laughs> <laughs> so usually more information is a good thing, because um, holding it back, 
like you say, you get to the end of the game and you're like, I've no idea what was going on. <laughs> I mean, sometimes that's fine, but um, I think as a player, you know, I know I'm sat there and, and the keeper's telling me things. And I'm like, I don't know how all these things go together because all you're getting is like little jigsaw pieces and you're trying to put them together. So in terms of advice on how you disseminate that information to your players, I think, um, you know, giving out bits and pieces and then listening to them, putting them together. And if they're, if they're all scratching their heads and sort of have got no clue what's going on, then, you know, maybe you just need to mm. ramp it up a little bit. Yeah. It's kind of hard to, to give any more concrete guidance yeah. than that, really. But, but kind of, yeah, listen to, to how well they're, they're putting it together. And, um, and don't make your plots too complicated. When we were doing live role play many mm. years ago, it was, we used to have something called the woodlouse test. So you have three woodlice, only two of, only one of which has to be alive. And as long as at least one of them understands the plot, there's a good chance that your players might, but players will always overcomplicate whatever you oh, do. Yeah, yeah. So, so you even know, if you tell them the plot, <laughs> they'll then invent extra on top of it anyway, and, and, and so it will go over there. So don't worry, information... But sometimes you know, that's better than what you said. Uh, that's better yeah, than what you said. So go with it. You know, for that, yeah. No, no, and if theirs is better than yours... Do theirs. Um, <laughs> it's often the way. But yeah, don't don't make it too complicated because they will just complicate it themselves regardless. And it'll appear more complicated from their side. Yes, they, yeah, they, they, don't have, they don't have you you already know all the parts, even if you don't remember them all at the same time. You know, you've read the scenario, you know all the internet connections and or, or you can quickly remind yourself of them because the book's in front of you. They only know these dots of information around. They are all connected, and even though as as Paul says, you know. By revealing that bit, they're only going to connect a couple of the dots. They're never going to get the ones over here or understand how they connect, and that's fine because it's a mystery. But so don't you know? Don't don't be afraid about giving information out. Really, keep things moving. Keep because information is is always interesting for players. I find. So um, at this point, we're gonna we're gonna answer one more question. But before we do, yes, I want everyone to look at the back of the chair they're sat on. If they find something unusual, could you let me know? <laughs> Someone's failed their spot hidden role. Yeah. Okay, what we're looking for, Definitely what we're looking for is a dragon. Not a real dragon. Not a real one. <laughs> Not a real one. But you know. <laughs> Have we found it? it? Is it yourself? Yeah, it's, it's your chair. Yes. Well done. You, you have found the spot prize, which is a uh, Colour Cthulhu colouring book. Please, uh, <laughs> round of applause for our... Uh... The look of fear on your face there was wonderful. <laughs> oh, God, what what's going to happen now? Into, <laughs> But we've got one, one time for one last quickie. Okay, uh, man, man in the corner there, been waiting very patiently. Just a quick question. I'd just like each of you to answer mm. if you could. Um, <laughs> more scenarios with either dolls or clowns, yes or no? Two most horrible things in the world. Well, that's not really, that's a bit of a loaded question, Kerry. You know, it's <laughs> yes or no. Is that just a yes or no? Just a yes or no. Or yes if you write them, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Oh, the true horror. Yes, and um, yeah, and and we'll, well, you in fact 
play tested a I certain did. scenario that I think immediately <laughs> came to mind uh, when that question was asked. Yes. Uh, so, and everybody yes. said I was being overly suspicious when the doll appeared, and then I was right. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thank you very much uh, for coming. I hope we've answered some questions. I hope there's a few tips in there that, that may be of value to you and, and you know, to try out down the line. Please, you know, we're around, you know, we're here all day and all weekend. Please come and visit the Cares uh, stand if you haven't. Come and have a chat. Uh, we've got, obviously, books for sale. Uh, come and have a look at the, the two books we haven't got for sale, but they will be on sale very soon. But you can see our preview copies of the, the pulp, the two of the seven I mentioned earlier, and uh, the Grand Grimoire of Cthulhu Mythos Magic, which is the uh, Book of Cthulhu Mythos Spells. Uh, please come along, say, uh, say hi. And thank you once again for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Blasphemoustomes.com. Mm-hmm.